Pastor Moody is continuing his series in Mark chapter 7, Authentic Christianity. And he's going to be preaching from verses 14 through verse 23. But I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 7 to give us some context here. So Mark 7, verses 1 to 23. Church family, hear God's word. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God. By your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is God's Word. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to the end of our series in Mark chapter 7, Uh, This morning, we will see how Jesus is teaching us that authentic Christianity starts with a change of heart. We've already uh, been observing how Mark in his gospel is uh, contrasting the teaching of the Pharisees with the teaching of Jesus. And we saw, didn't we, in the first week how Pharisees then, and by application Pharisees now, 
are characterized by certain approach to religion. And their approach to religion is typically one that holds to tradition combined with God's Word. And as we saw last week, when you combine those two in the same locus or place of authority, what actually happens is tradition, human tradition, takes pride of place and makes void the Word of God. And we saw how Jesus brought that issue into stark relief to emphasize how we must hold on to God's Word and not combine that with human tradition. That was our theme last week. Uh, But then this week, we're looking at this issue of what's going on in our hearts. And the other part of what characterized and typifies still today, Pharisaism, was not simply a concern for traditional human religious teaching as opposed to a pure commitment to God's Word, but also a fascination and a fixation with the external in religion. Uh, For the Pharisees, the external was to do with washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, but as Mark makes clear, they had many other sorts of external behaviors that they emphasized and were fixated upon. And Jesus now, in this, our last in this series in Mark chapter 7, is now teaching us that really what it means to follow God, though, is not about external conformity to religious uh, behaviors or norms, washing and what you eat and what you wear, but instead about a radical change of heart. And therefore, as we uh, summarize what we'll be learning this morning, it is, as I said at the beginning, that authentic Christianity starts with a change of heart. Now, Friends, as I've been thinking about how to communicate this to you this week, it has struck me that we have a significant challenge. And that challenge is what I've just said is so um, familiar, particularly if you grew up in Christian circles, that we can let it just go over the top of our head and not really connect with us. Our songs tend to talk about heart. Our Christian subculture language tends to talk about the heart. And so it becomes so familiar that we are in danger, unless we're very careful, of missing the true radical import of what Jesus is saying. Um, That's one aspect of, of the challenge. The other aspect of the challenge is while it's so familiar to us, for many people this language of the heart is viewed as deeply impractical. We might not come out and say it, but the reality is we think that it's okay for a Sunday, it's okay for church, uh, less good for work, uh, certainly won't impact our culture, Um, not that important when it comes to politics, doesn't really affect the economy. And when we think on the world scene today of the potential conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and we're talking this morning about heart, uh, 
It, it, it seems to many people, though they wouldn't want to say it because they're too polite to say it to a, a preacher or to say it in the context of a church, but it seems deeply impractical. And yet, not only is this teaching of Jesus is genuinely, genuinely radical and not ho-hum familiar, it's also deeply practical. If we can truly grasp what Jesus is saying, it will change our, our families, our churches, our culture, our politics, and it is the one great hope uh, for the geopolitical world as well. And so the challenge is, at the one hand, it seems so familiar that we can happily ignore it, but if we were truly to grasp it, it's so radical, it's somewhat shocking. It seems so impractical that we can talk about it on church, in church, but it won't make any difference to the world, but if we would truly grasp it, it's the one great hope for the world. And so there's a, a major gap between what has been said in the Scriptures and what we tend to think is being said in the Scriptures about this, this matter. And as I was thinking through how to communicate that with you, came across an illustration of it, which I think is an interesting story. So there was a, a, an old man this week in Nottingham in England who was pulled over by the police. Uh, he is in, was in his early 80s, was born in, I think, 1938, and he was pulled over by the police, and when they checked his license and insurance, they found that he did not have a license or insurance. And this is a man in his early 80s, and obviously when you drive in England as in America, you need a license and insurance, but he didn't have it. But on further examination, what they discovered was that this man had actually been driving since the age of 12 and had never had a license or insurance, ever. And I think many of us are a bit like that when it comes to the heart. We know there should be a heart change, but we happily drive through church without a license or insurance. And I said it's a matter of great import for the world, but it's a matter of great import for the church. The biggest problem facing the church in America is the need for genuine Christian conversion of those who claim they're Christians. A heart change. Well, let's see how Jesus teaches us that in the passage this morning. And what we would see, and this, there's obviously a lot of detail and information here that we can't get into in, in great depth, but I want to show you the key structure of it that is really built around two words. The first is defile, and the second is unclean. And... The first of those words, defile, shows us how radical Jesus' teaching is. And the second word, clean, shows us how practical his teaching is. 
So as you can see in the passage that we had read out, the issue of external defilement is central to the Pharisees' concern and up until this point Jesus has ignored that particular issue and has instead taught about the word of God and worship. But now he comes to what is their point of concern, which is defilement. And this is verse 14. So he calls the people to him again and says to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person. So Jesus is not simply here talking about food and clothes and washing, though that is what he's talking about. But he's talking about everything outside. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him and this is a, a pithy aphorism that uh, was presumably a summary of what Jesus was saying uh, he didn't simply just say this but this was the summary of what he was saying much like you'll find often when I'm preaching I have a summary statement authentic Christianity is a uh, something that starts with a change of heart. That would be a summary of what I'm saying this morning. Similarly, Jesus' summary of his teaching now to the people is there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then the disciples don't quite understand this, and so when he's alone with the disciples, they ask him about this parable. That is, this saying, a parable isn't simply a story, Parable means something that's put alongside something else, an illustration, a pithy aphorism like this one that makes the point by contrast. And uh, so this is a parable or a saying, a proverbial saying that was a summary statement of what Jesus was teaching. And so they asked him about it. And then he says, well, verse 18, are you also without understanding? Don't you see that whatever goes into person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And as the ESV and probably whatever translation you have in front of you does something similar, you'll note that it tells us that in the Greek, it's a little more blunt. Jesus actually says, goes out into the latrine or the toilet. And I suppose... Most of our translations thought that was a little too blunt for the actual text, but that is what Jesus said. And I think he's deliberately trying to be blunt to wake them up to how ridiculous it is to be concerned about what you eat. And thus, Mark says, he declares all foods clean. Christians are not to be ritually concerned about eating pig or other kinds of foods. All foods are clean, according to Jesus. But this isn't simply about foods, for he goes on, verse 20, verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, and, and the list that we've already heard read out to us. Jesus is showing us by his exposition of this word defile that there is a radical issue with the human heart. The Bible teaches that every single human being is made in the image of God and therefore absolutely precious. But the Bible also teaches that every single human being 
is fallen and filled with sin. The Anglican prayer book uh, says before uh, the communion, the phrase it uses is, there is no health within us. And the teaching then of the Bible is that the human heart is desperately wicked. And Jesus here is telling us this. Many scholars have tried to figure out exactly why Jesus chooses these particular sins. Some have attempted to categorize them by the Ten Commandments. Is it possible that Jesus is reflecting the teaching of the Ten Commandments and, and therefore categorizing these lists of sins in that way? But they don't fit neatly into reflection of the Ten Commandments. More likely, in my view, what Jesus is doing is he's looking into the human heart with his divine x-ray vision, and he's describing what he sees there, and it could go on and on and on. Evil thoughts, slander adultery, murder, theft, and on and on and on and on and on. There's a principle of hell that is rooted in the human heart. I was amazed to discover this week that if you get just a teaspoon of soil, of dirt, of earth, in one little teaspoon of soil, there are more microbes than the entire population of the globe. And so next time you fall over and graze your knee, that will make you feel pretty gross. One little teaspoon, more microbes than the whole population of the earth, billions Tens of thousands of different kinds. One little teaspoon. And somewhat similarly, Jesus is saying, you just take one little teaspoon of the human heart, there's all this evil. Of course, we don't like to talk about that. We like to emphasize the positive Uh, we like to talk about how lovely people are, what a good person he is. And the Bible says there's no one good but God alone. It's one old hymn that used to talk about us being miserable worms. And newer versions of the hymn take out that phrase, miserable worms, because I presume they think it's a rather unkind thing to say about a person, that he's a miserable worm. But of course, biblically, if we're thinking accurately, to call a human person a miserable worm in our fallen nature, of course, we're made in the image of God, but we're also fallen. To call a human person a miserable worm is not an unkind thing to say about a person. No, to compare us with miserable worms is a rather unkind thing to say about worms. 
Worms are not infinitely depraved. They're part of the fallen human nature, but I don't think you could say within the heart of a worm is sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Maybe foolishness, perhaps. My friends, we must face up to this. And if we cannot face up to it in church, when can we? Who else is ever going to tell us the real nature of the human condition if it isn't a preacher from the Bible? And yet, the sad truth is, so rarely do preachers from the Bible actually tell us what the problem is. Our problem is not how our parents treated us when we were four. That's not our problem. Our our problem is not the political system. Uh, maybe, Maybe our parents did do bad things to us, and the political system, I'm sure, is broken in all sorts of ways, but that's not the real problem. Now, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And if we wish to see a better country, a better society, what we need is people with better hearts. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who once said that people were always complaining about trying to put morality and moral people into politics and he joked in the typical Spurgeon way that well we've tried doing politics without moral people perhaps we should try doing it with moral people what a difference it would make if we didn't have hearts like this What a difference it would make to the argument going on between Russia and Ukraine if our hearts were not this. What a difference it would make to our marriages and our families if our hearts were not like this. This is truly radical teaching. And it runs against the grain of every human tradition. Runs against the grain of Marxism that is built upon the idea that we're fundamentally good. We're not fundamentally good. We're fundamentally fallen. But uh, that's, uh, every time I've read this through in the past, I've always felt that Mark in his gospel finishes on a bit of a downer. I've always wanted to say to Mark, well, so what's the solution if that's the problem? And I've always been rather confused why he doesn't give us the solution until I read more carefully and I realized that he did. So not only is this radical, it's also practical. And the radical nature is revealed by the word defile, and the practicality is revealed by the word he chooses, which is clean. So in verse 19, he says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. He doesn't say undefiled, he says all foods clean. Obviously the same idea, but I think that word is chosen deliberately for then the story continues in verse 24. We didn't have it read out for us because I wanted to explain it as I read it. 
But Mark then tells a remarkable story of a woman and her daughter who finds the solution. And what he does here is he stress tests the solution. He brings the most extreme possible problem of the human heart and shows how it works in that case and therefore how it works in every case. So verse 24, Jesus goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is further north and west, uh, and he enters a house and doesn't want people to know. But there comes a woman whose little daughter, verse 25, had an unclean spirit. And that word unclean is used to mean demonic, but here it's connecting to the issue of cleanliness. Here's a little girl whose heart is unclean, like all of our hearts. She has a particular issue of demonic oppression. It's an extreme stress test. Can the solution that Mark is going to offer solve this problem? And if it can, it will solve our problems. So the little daughter has an unclean spirit. But not only that, the woman, the mother, was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. So she's both religiously non-Jewish and ethnically non-Jewish. She is doubly unlikely to be saved. But she begs Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. That's our first hint of the solution. But here, Mark further increases the stress test. Jesus puts her off. Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What an offensive thing to say. And yet Jesus is deliberately raising the barrier higher so that we can see what the solution is in the most unlikely situation. So you, here you have a little girl who's demon-possessed, a woman who is ethnically and religiously on the outside, and Jesus raising the barrier to make it harder for her to be saved. And what happens? She answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs we know the Bible teaches that there's no unrighteous not even one neither Jew nor Gentile and as Jesus has just taught us we are all miserable worms in our hearts or as Mark and Jesus now puts it dogs But then Jesus says to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. That's the solution. Faith in Jesus. The pursuit of Jesus. 
trusting Jesus. Oh, it sounds so impractical, so familiar, and yet here in the most unlikely of cases, a woman is saved and therefore it is the solution for the situation of the church in America, around the world, for the geopolitical conflict in Russia and Ukraine, for our culture, for our families, for our marriages. What did Jesus say was the problem with marriage? The hardness of heart. We need a radical change of heart that can only happen by Jesus and His Spirit received through faith, this kind of desperate faith that the woman had. Well, it's a remarkable story, isn't it? I was uh, one of my uh, favorite actors is a man called Sir Anthony Hopkins. Uh, he has been around for quite a long while and has played a lot of theater acting, but he's also appeared in a lot of movies. And one movie that I'm going to mention it, but don't, um, this is not a recommendation. <laughs> Just in case I get emails afterwards. But he was, um, he's most famous for playing Hannibal in The Silence of the Lambs, which I would not recommend you see at all. But Sir Anthony Hopkins was for many years a renowned atheist. But he, uh, according to him, and this is an interview by Pierce Brosnan, he was an alcoholic and was desperate. And he knew that Alcoholics Anonymous talk about a higher power when you're desperate. And so uh, in this interview of Pierce Brosnan, he, he said that he said to God, can you give me a little bit of help? And according to Anthony Hopkins, in his words, pow! It was like bingo. He's never had a craving for alcohol since, he says. Now, maybe it won't always work like that in terms of alcoholism, but it will work like that in terms of our eternal relationship with God. And I don't know exactly what Anthony Hopkins believes about Jesus, and I rather suspect that this Gentile Syrophoenician woman didn't know everything, didn't have every doctrinal T crossed and every doctrinal I dotted either. But she said, help. And God in his mercy healed her daughter. It's a radical problem with a very practical solution faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, thank you so much uh, for your teaching here that exposes our tendency towards making human rules and human teachings and external performance rather than radical heart change. We pray this morning that by your Spirit, you would give us 
new hearts and new desire for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.